listening to Descent Magazine's Belaboured Podcast, hosted by Sarah Jaffe and Michelle Chen. Hi, Michelle. Hey, Sarah. Welcome to episode 198 of Belaboured. 198. How the hell did we get here? Uh, We talked about that in a conversation with Red May this week, actually. But anyway, today on Belaboured for our almost 200th episode, we have a know your rights when working under coronavirus conversation for you with an expert on the subject. We try to answer all of your questions about being asked to return to work and when and how you can say no. But first, the news. It all started when I interviewed Kroger pharmacy technician and union steward Travis Booth about working conditions at Kroger during the crisis. We talked then about the hero pay that the United Food and Commercial Workers, or UFCW, had won for essential workers still doing their jobs, as well as other protections. I talked to other workers, Courtney Meadows and then Veronica Copeland, who told me that she'd received a letter from Kroger saying that she owed the company money for emergency pay that she'd been, quote, overpaid. She wasn't the only one, according to UFCW Local 400, and these letters were coming at the same time as the company had decided to stop its $2 an hour hazard pay that the workers had been getting, their hero bonuses. They would still, Copeland noted, be required to wear masks and take all those additional safety precautions, but they would no longer get extra pay for the risks they were still taking in coming to work. The Kroger situation seemed emblematic of this thing that we've been hearing over and over from so-called essential workers in this pandemic. When companies say essential, what they mean is expendable. We published Veronica's story last week on May 14th and got an immediate reaction. It was shared broadly, and we heard from Kroger workers from around the country, angry that their hero pay was being rescinded and sharing the conditions in which they were still working. The internet was pretty outraged that Kroger was actually asking workers to pay back their extra pay. And then this week, I heard from the union that Kroger had backed down and would no longer expect repayment of the supposed overpay. Quote, we look forward to informing our union members who have received these collections letters that Kroger is no longer seeking money from them. We will also investigate any incidents in which a member may have already paid some money back to the company to ensure they are made whole. We are pleased Kroger has come to its senses. Now they can focus their attention on extending hero pay until this crisis is over, a UFCW Local 400 spokesperson told me. The union continues to push for extension on that hero pay. But I'd like to give Travis Booth, whose story started this whole thing, the last word. He told me at the time, quote, Our contract here in West Virginia through Local 400 is actually set to expire in August. What I want to stress to my coworkers with this is that not only does this give us leverage and power right now, but I think it's absolutely necessary for us to continue that momentum forward and say, come contract renewal, if they can afford this hazard pay right now and these other benefits and this compensation, talking about childcare or paid leave, maintaining our health fund, what is to stop them in August from doing the exact same thing? We can't settle for anything less than what we actually deserve. Washington State is famous for its apples, but truckloads of them may soon be spoiling in the next few days as hundreds of workers in the Yakima Valley's fruit packing plants go on strike. According to Capital in Maine, 
Six work sites in Yakima County have been shut down as workers have walked off the job to demand a $2 raise in hazard pay as well as safer working conditions. Over the past several weeks, the fruit packing houses, which are filled every day with Mexican immigrant laborers working shoulder to shoulder for extremely low wages, have been charged with fear. Workers have complained about a lack of face masks and adequate testing, and the Farm Workers Union, Familias Unidas por la Justicia, protested that the workers had been deemed essential, yet their pay did not reflect their purported value to the industry. Edgar Franks, a spokesperson for the union, told Capital in Maine that in in spite of the governor's orders mandating certain workplace safety protocols, quote, a lot of the safety measures haven't reached the workers inside. The workers are elbow to elbow on the line, packing the fruit going through there. Workers got sick, and they're concerned that no one is looking after them or the well-being of their family and friends still inside, unquote. So far, the companies have not met the workers' demands. One company offered to compensate the workers by buying them lunch, which they, of course, rejected. What they really want are comprehensive medical screenings, both for workers and for their families, and they want adequate protective gear so that they can have the peace of mind of knowing that they're going to work without needlessly contributing to an outbreak. There's also been a hostile environment around the protest sites. One counter-protester displayed a sign that said, return to work, your fear is the virus that is attacking our civil rights. Free yourself. Adding, what would Jesus do? And the union has reported that company officials have apparently been surveilling them, walking around taking photos of the strikers. And now worker committees, according to the Yakima Herald, um, have been meeting to discuss their strategies and to keep up morale. Though farm workers largely non-unionized across the country, and the packing house workers union is still very young, the strike has lit a spark in this often overlooked facet of the food supply chain. The union states that the strikes have been women-led, multi-generational, and multiracial. So perhaps the unrest and confusion created by the pandemic is spurring workers to self-organize. In any case, if Washington apples start disappearing from grocery shelves across the country, consumers may start to realize just how rotten their working conditions are. Teachers around the U.S. are organizing to fight off both early reopening of schools and the looming pressure of permanent distance learning, as politicians like Andrew Cuomo cozy up to Bill Gates for reimagining schools. I have recent and upcoming stories on the West Virginia teachers organizing for post-strike power and the New York City teachers push to close schools early and then to stay safe now. But this week, for Belabored, I decided to check in with someone from across the ocean. Charlie Owen is a primary school teacher and union activist in the National Education Union, NEU, as well as the co-host of Requires Improvement, a UK education workers podcast. And I talked to her because the UK, which has the highest coronavirus death toll in Europe and is second well only to us, wants to reopen its schools on June 1st. What? We discussed. For our US listeners who may not be following what's been going on in the UK, what is the proposal to reopen schools that you are dealing with? So it's changing by the day, really, but uh, about a week ago. Boris Johnson announced that we were going to have a planned reopening start date uh, from June the 1st. Now, that's not all schools, that's just primary schools and it's just state schools. So it's interesting to note that Boris Johnson and the rest of his cabinet, um, some of them have children, but they all go to private schools as opposed to three state schools. So state schools are going to open potentially for children age 5, 6 and 11. So how that's going to work uh, is still somewhat unclear. Um, but, yeah, it's something that is actually only just today. Some There's some talk of it actually letting them back down on it because 
it's looking like the tracking and tracing apps and general um, things in place for that are, are looking like they're, they're not going to be ready. So potentially uh, it won't be June the 1st for everyone, but we're still waiting because there are some uh, schools and there are some academies in particular, academies being very similar to, I think we've got charter schools mm-hmm. who are very keen to open and their their reasoning for that is... Uh, a bit cloudy they're sort of claiming it's about vulnerable children mm-hmm. um, but also it's worth noting and that's the old schools reopening that schools actually are already open to vulnerable children um, yeah. and they're already open to key workers so that argument kind of falls on its face um, so they're saying it's vulnerable children but it's very likely that it's it's got that com- competitive element to it mm-hmm. that um that the academy schools want to open so that they can be drilling their children with information, not even real learning, but the information that's, you know, um, going to get them higher results in um, future testing mm-hmm. so they can continue to claim that they're the best. Interesting. It's very complicated. But... So what is the rationale for them opening primary schools first because I would think those would be the children that are the least likely to you know do things like wash their hands regularly absolutely and that's that's been a big question um the way it's been sort of presented is it's that that being a key time for their learning uh and development but many teachers in that sort of um section of primary schools are saying well all the learning we do is so much about being together it's so much mm-hmm. about touching and being tactile and everyone sharing yeah you know, sharing is so important and that now we could probably ask to tell children they're not allowed to share so yeah we've been presented that it's development we're being presented that it's again as I mentioned about being vulnerable um but the underlying kind of uh message is that it's about the fact that those children are the most difficult to kind of leave and let them get on with themselves in the home. Mm-hmm. And that potentially the idea is really to have um, the parents of those younger children more free and able to, yeah, go back to work, maybe right. leave the older children unattended or maybe with an older sibling while, yeah, the youngest of their children are able to, um, yeah, be taken care of. Essentially, that we're being expected to be childcare, mm-hmm. and I think that nurseries and childcare centres with children even younger than that are kind of being encouraged to open. Mm-hmm. Although, I guess that's going to be down more down to them. Uh, workers in nurseries are generally not particularly unionised, mm-hmm. um, so that's I think more likely to happen yeah. um, than primary schools. Shockingly, the fact that everybody else depends on teachers is uh, sort of important here. So I want to talk about what the union's been doing to organize against this. But first, the the tabloid press and others have sort of decided that this is their opportunity to really go after the teachers union. Yeah, absolutely. We were heroes a few weeks ago. Um, and now we're back to being lazy and being, I think, zealots is one of the words used, mm. um, which is always good fun. Um, yeah, the attack has been brutal, especially by the Daily Mail. And yeah, the the whole concept that you have to be a hero to go in when it's 
not even safe. It's clearly not safe. There's so many uh, experts saying that it's not going to work, right. but potentially it could just create a, a second wave. Yeah. I don't know how that makes you a hero. Um, but yeah, the idea about laziness is, is wild, especially when you think that the, you know, the hardest working, like, I know I'm really lucky because I don't have any dependents, but there are loads and loads of educators who are also parents who are doing a double shift. And the idea that they're lazy to actually say that they want to keep doing that double shift in order to keep everyone safe, like the belief, yeah, and we're not going to be martyrs. Yeah, so talk about the unions organizing. I know there was like a massive Zoom call and things like that, but mm. but yeah, and sort of, again, for our US listeners who don't know that much about the NEU, um, give us some context for this kind of organizing within the union. Yeah, so the National Education Union is a amalgamation of two other unions who joined together about two years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, so now we are 450,000 odd members strong, uh, which makes us the biggest um, teaching union or education union in Europe. Um, and yes, it's it's been amazing because um, what we're seeing is we've got thousands and thousands of members joining and like literally since um made our announcement but what's really key is that we're having more reps who want um yeah to get involved and to support their schools and their members and yeah that's been amazing so yeah as as you mentioned there was a zoom call that happened it was nationally uh going back to the the daily mail and their presentation but i think they described that as a secret meeting i don't (laughs) know if uh anyone you know shares secrets with 20,000 people and just thinks they've still kept their secret. Uh, but, yeah, uh, we've had, like, local meetings uh, on Zoom and other platforms like that that have, yeah, every week and every week so that they've got even more and more people joining in. People are asking questions. Uh, other members who've only recently, like, become more active are already so confident that they're helping answer those questions. So they're saying, oh, this is what I did in my school, or this is what I've heard others are doing, and linking uh, articles, linking with um, workplace rights um, information, websites, and things like that. So it's, it's been amazing. We've, uh, yeah, we've done loads of phone banking. So that's where you get a whole bunch of members who are willing to make loads and loads of phone calls to basically say how are you doing and the beginning um to our members uh is there anything that um you need help with we can help you do yourself uh but also asking if they want to be a rep or what we're kind of calling a covid contact so that's we're understanding that some people feel yeah maybe they want to dip their toe and they know they want to help their school but they don't necessarily know that they want to be a rep yet so creating that kind of space Mm -hmm. to to know that people would be supported, that they wouldn't just be left to be a rep if they if they didn't feel that ready, especially remotely. That's quite that might feel quite a lot. And so, what is what are sort of the options that teachers have if they continue to try to force you back to school? So, yeah, it's it's a difficult one because it depends on your situation in the country. So, it is worth noting. I think that we haven't just said yet that while um, Boris Johnson said, you know, everywhere's reopening um, to those those year groups. Uh, Northern Ireland, Wales and Scotland, our devolved nations all said, nope, 
So actually, there's a whole bunch of the country which isn't worrying about this. So it, within England, yeah. um, it's something you have to deal with. It. And then within the country um, of England, we've got uh, councils like Liverpool who've said, nope, that's not happening. So those, those schools don't need to worry about it in the same way mm-hmm. um, that others do. And then within other regions, even more, more locally, uh, there are schools where the head has said, don't worry about it, I'm not going to reopen school. Mm-hmm. So all, there are lots and lots of schools already because they come into those, under those categories or under those regions that already it's clear that they're not going to be reopening. So we're looking at, of the ones that are, what can they do? Yeah. Well, we've got Section 44 that we're really peddling to individual members, and that's part of the Health and Safety Act. So mm-hmm. it's it's kind of like a last resort that individually um, educators might say, because it is, isn't just teachers, it's, it supports staff as well. So Section 44 says that, you know, if you deem your workplace to be unsafe, mm-hmm. you can either leave it, you know, if you're already there, and, you know, you're not supposed to be, you know, getting reprimanded or getting your pay cut as a result of that. So that's something on an individual level. We're yeah. trying to make sure people are aware of this, of that being the last resort, and to kind of step back from that. How do we avoid having to do that on the, an individual level? There'll be um, really in communication with the with the heads. So it's what we're saying to members is basically talk to your heads as much as possible. Um, so that's about looking at the risk assessments and there's a checklist that um, the four unions have collaborated on. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you're sending that to your heads, you're saying that when this gets met and it's, yeah, things like number of sinks, um, plans for mini groups mm-hmm. and rotors for lunchtime. So it's, yeah, it, it, it comes down to, and that's, and that's one of the problems is that because Boris Johnson said, uh, oh, open but in your own way yeah. when it can start from June 1st schools, academy trusts regions are all interpreting this in different ways um, some have even asked um, the educators to already go back in advance of June 1st this is, I think technically goes against some of the coronavirus law that we have mm. in order to prepare but they're preparing things like separating desks, they're not preparing in the way like uh, emotional support which is something that yeah. yeah, getting completely ignored in all of this. That was Charlie Owen, a teacher and co-host of the Requires Improvement podcast. We will link to her show at the Descent website, descentmagazine.org. And if you are a teacher struggling with all of this reopening stuff in the US, the UK, or somewhere else, we want to hear from you at belabored at descentmagazine.org. A group of New Orleans sanitation workers have entered the third week of a historic strike against their employer. People Ready, which supplies workers for another firm, Metro Services Group, which is one of several private contractors that collects trash for the city. The workers are demanding increased wages from $10 to $15 an hour, as well as better safety protections on the job. Initially, it appeared that workers had been fired, but when the news came out that the workers had been fired immediately after going on strike, and also that the workers were actually being replaced by people on the work release program of the local prison, the company apparently backtracked, perhaps trying to be mindful of its public image. Last Tuesday, the workers were handed a letter stating that they could in fact continue to work for Metro Services, and the company has also claimed that it's providing protective gear and other sanitation measures. But the workers simply don't feel safe going back. The strike strike was led by hoppers, the workers who hop on and off the back of garbage collection trucks to haul trash into the back. Three weeks in, They are still demanding hazard pay of $150 a week and more protective gear, plus repairs to some trucks. 
not a huge ask, considering that these workers are working for poverty wages with no health insurance in a city that has been besieged by COVID-19. I spoke with Ernest Taylor, a hopper, who talked about why they went on strike and how he has found the experience of striking in the midst of a pandemic. It all started because we just got sick and tired of us getting in the, the proper equipment for the pick up the garbage. And we weren't getting no type of hands to take. And uh, the, the trucks keep leaking hydraulic oil and all and stuff on us. And we feel like we, we were just bringing it in by the um, COVID-19 and everything. It just, we just felt it was a little too much for us. And they, they weren't giving us the proper PPE. And so was this brought on um, by COVID-19 or? No, it was just, it was just, it, it all started from, but really it been going on before the COVID-19. COVID-19 just pushed it to a breaking point, that's all. How did you come to the decision to uh, finally go on strike? Oh, uh, because we was, uh, let me see, we was all, all going around. We weren't getting the proper the proper face masks and gloves and all that, we weren't, we weren't getting enough of that. And then, you know, we, we with our employees, really is people ready, or people ready is signed through Metro Disposable. And we was asking them for, like, more, like, more proper gear and everything, and we told them that we don't get that, we're not going to go out to work. So they came out, the first day they came out, they told us that, well, we don't get on the truck, that we all was fired. And then after we all, all was fired, they started bringing in the prisoners and or the people from the halfway out the devil one it was for the uh for to get on the trucks for us. Wow. And and now now the those people are still doing your rounds? Oh no, not at the moment they're not doing the because I guess after the news that people caught wind of that. You know, they, they, they stopped letting them do it, but the dudes who were taking all place from the um from the work release place, they, they didn't even know they was what they were getting themselves into. They didn't even know they was coming out there to get on the garbage truck. We actually were talking to them. They didn't even know what they was coming to do there. And then they said they knew from jump that they was coming to replace us. They wouldn't have never agreed to come out there. They would have they would have refused to work. Yeah. I've been picking up trash since 07. You know, some of the time it'd it be good, you know, but it, it's something to pay my bills and keep my kids safe. I don't complain about it, but now with the COVID-19 and everything, you know, it, it's a big old risk we taking by going out there, you know, dealing with the maggots and all that, not having the proper gear. And I have to bring that, you know, bring that back home to my family. You know, I'm taking a big old risk on that, and then we don't we don't get like no we don't get like no no sick pay. We don't get no type of benefit. It's a straight pay. You come there, you work, you make your day's wage, and that's it. Nothing extra, nothing less. And so, what do you think is going to happen now? Is it do you think the city might get involved? Well, we right right now, you know, because we've been going at this this about to be our third week right now, like. At the same time, like the same time we go out there to go get garbage, we still get up out of our bed early in the morning. We still go out there, we, we do all all strikes, try to see other man. Nobody comes to the front and like you know, they feel like they 
the trucks be sitting out there until they get some hoppers to get on them. But it's like they're not going out as regular routine anymore. Is it like the city just has trash all over the place now because no one's picking it up? No, it's like, you know, they, they getting it like, I think last uh, last week they started working on Sundays, I think, for to get caught up from the government they couldn't pick up Saturday. But the the week we went on strike, oh, uh, man, we talking about garbage on top of garbage on top of garbage. Wow. And so how long do you think it'll, you know, they can hold out like this? Man, uh, really, I'm right now, right now, no, it ain't piling up. It's just they out there even longer picking up the garbage. But the hobbits that they, they working with right now, you know, they're not lasting. So that's why the trucks ain't going out the way they're going out. We willing to do the work as long as they willing to meet all demands. That's, we, we we love our job. We're not never denying that, but it's just a respect thing and it's COVID-19. And, you know, we got family. We got mouths to feed and We ain't trying to bring none of that home to our family. If we get the proper equipment and the proper pay, I feel right now, within this um, pandemic right now, you know, we don't have no problem. But it's like they're not, they not trying to come talk to us. They're not trying to give us no demand. And we out there every day. Every day. 3.30 in the morning. We in front of the gate. Every day. And are you represented by a union? Yeah, we all, all representatives. Uh, we are city wage union. It's just something we came up with. For the moment. Do you have a contract? No, that's something we're in the process of trying to get at the moment. And how many are you all together? All together at the moment, that all that's standing together at the moment, we like 15 or 20 on a, on a give or take basis, 14 all together. But like when other people, I guess when they come out, when they feel like, We'd be between 15 and 20 at the move. And how has the response been from the community? Oh, man, we just, um, the turnout, I'm just like the residents, like, because people on our route, they even come out early in the morning to support us. They be out there with us. Like, you know, we, we just feel love because the route that we do, everybody, they know us. Like, you know, they be having water. They be like, good morning, how you doing and all that, you know. We show respect on our own, and people show us respect. Yeah, we really miss the job, and the and the resident really miss us too. And we ready to get back to work, but you know, as they meeting all the men, you know, giving all of the safety equipment and everything. I don't, I don't know what's going on. How long do you think you'll be out there striking? Shoot. We out here for the long haul, so we can. Because right now, we feel we meant. At the end of the day, we government. This, this is a job that nobody want to do. This is a job that we love to do. We consider ourselves as consensual workers too, and we would like to be treated like consensual workers. You're not making money. Is it is it hard for people to continue on like this? Yeah, it, it's kind of hard, but um. So some people that came together and um they, they had sponsored like a GoFundMe page and like some of the hoppers like it's the, like the grew the hoppers together. It's like we like a family. So if one of them don't got it, so we'll help each other out. That was Ernest Taylor, one of the New Orleans sanitation workers who are now on strike. 
As governments rush to reopen businesses across the country, many workers and labor groups remain extremely wary, rightly so, given that we've seen horrific outbreaks of COVID-19 at many workplaces, from nursing homes to meatpacking plants, even during the economic lockdown. In addition, the Federal Occupational Safety and Health Administration, or OSHA, has anemic enforcement ability, and the occupational safety policies and guidelines at the federal and state level are a confusing hodgepodge of half-measures and corporate loopholes. Since the pandemic has underscored the underlying weaknesses of the country's labor protections, when will it ever be safe to return to work? We talked to Peter Dooley, Senior Project Coordinator of National Council for Occupational Safety and Health, about what workers, regulators, and communities need to do to keep workers as safe as possible amid the pandemic. Currently, many states are reopening or they're planning to reopen really soon. I think just about every state, I think. So on the whole, from a workplace safety standpoint, are you concerned that this is all happening too soon? Uh, yes, we're, we're horrified, to tell you the truth. Uh, I mean, the experience with trying to have protections in place for the essential workers that have been working from the beginning, uh, you know, of the pandemic crisis has been has been a disaster. It's been it's been horrible. Uh, and we're still not, you know, we're we're still not uh, up to speed with trying to have adequate protections for essential workers in place. So the the thought of bringing in more workers to a system that's um, you know not adequately uh, able to protect the existing workers that are there uh, is is very frightening. What are some of the protections people should keep in mind if they are being asked to return to work before they feel it's safe, which is basically everyone? Which is everyone? Yeah. Well. There's, uh, yeah, there, I mean, there's, there's a lot of, there's a lot of things that uh, workers need to be keeping in in mind, um, you know, as they go back to work. Um, so I think that the the basic, um, the the first, uh, you know, element of a uh, an employer program is having a written program. Mm -hmm. uh, that that really um, identifies where workers, where all workers uh, might have a risk for, um, you know, for needing protection from the virus, um, and what the um, what the protective measures are going to be in order to prevent that exposure. Um, I mean, it's important to to you know remember that we are in this uh, horrible situation that we are uh, with so many workers that have uh, contracted uh, COVID nineteen, died from COVID nineteen, and otherwise uh, suffered and and brought the virus to their families, their community, mm -hmm. and and basically have. Um, you know, multiplied the spread of, of the virus. Um, and we're in this situation because uh, preventive measures were, were not in place. Right. Um, and, and that has uh, really 
uh, been, like I say, a disaster for, for everyone, for obviously for workers uh, front and center. Uh, but the, um, you know, sort of the secondary effect is on, on the community and, 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 and families in general. Um, so, so each workplace, I mean, needs to have a plan in place uh, about how they're, how they're going to protect their workers. And, and they can't have a plan um, that's adequate without having workers uh, be in, involved and engaged in developing and implementing the plan. Uh, so workers should be, um, um, you know, seeing a workplace that's that's inviting them to to be um, part of the pro, you know part of the program in terms of identifying risk factors, identifying solutions. Um, and uh, being able to raise uh, concerns without any kind of fear of retaliation. Right. So uh, even with a, a plan in place on paper, um, it seems that it's very, quite likely, perhaps inevitable, that bosses will continue to uh, violate uh, these safety guidelines as they've been doing uh, so far up until this point um, in many cases. So, um, you know, if, you're, if your boss, say, refuses to provide personal protective equipment or, uh, you know, does not provide adequate training for safety, um, what recourse do workers typically have? And, you know, if there's no written policy in place, like what, what kind of recourse is available to people uh, under the law? Well, the, the silver lining of um, a crisis like this is the way that people uh, respond to it and particularly workers. Um, and there's been an incredible, um, uh, amount of organizing going on about workers, uh, demanding protections, better protections, um, than they are, have experienced, um, recognizing, you know, the life-threatening, situations that workers, um, you know, are being put in, um, has really opened up incredible, courageous efforts to, to be connecting with coworkers, um, developing strategies with coworkers, um, all kinds of new organizations of workers, uh, connecting with unions, um, for unionized workers um, being, you know, fully engaged in the union uh, and and uh, putting pressure on employers to be responding to worker uh, issues and worker demands uh, and doing all kinds of job actions um, to send the message that it's it's either protections. Uh, respecting worker rights, or um, there's going to be interruptions in the work, uh, and and the the level of activity that's that's been going on is um, literally without precedent, uh, at least in the last several decades. Um, and 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 more and more, uh, you know, that is being recognized by the public and the community. Uh, it's being recognized in uh, various legislative arenas like state agencies 
um, you know, are ad adapting new uh, uh, executive orders and uh, various policies that support that give some additional support to worker uh, worker rights in under you know related to COVID protections. Um, there needs to be a tremendous amount. Uh, more activity at both at the local level, uh, state level, as well as federal level. But um, there, it, it's all it's all start you know sort of starting from the ground up, <laughs> uh, and uh, and and the the way in which um, you know grassroots advocacy organizations and uh, workers themselves. Um, are are speaking up and and being incredibly courageous um, is is really a force um, that is is needing to be reckoned with, uh, and this is a chance for connecting these efforts um, globally to be you know fighting against uh, the injustices that have been part of certainly our country's uh, infrastructure um, and uh, as well as other uh, yeah, sort of injustices and inequities uh, when dealing with worker rights and, and community rights. Um, there's been a, a lot of local communities that have um, had to um, you know, sort of raise the floor for workers in their community because they're so tied together in the sense, you know, this virus doesn't stop at the factory gate. Um, and more and more people are seeing the connection between workplace exposures uh, and community exposures. On that note, what protections do workers have if they refuse to work in unsafe conditions, either by refusing to go back when their boss says, hey, it's time to work, or by walking off the job if they see violations? The protections um, that are currently in place under OSHA are basically, we refer to them as sort of a... Um, Paperwork protection. <laughs> um, they there there is you know written into the OSHA uh, OSHA Act and OSHA law, um, and, and supported by uh, Supreme Court decisions and such. Uh, there is a right for workers to refuse um, unsafe work um, that they reasonably you know. Uh, feel uh, could be causing serious injury or even death, um, which is a term imminent danger is the term often you know connected with the right to refuse hazardous work. Um, the The problem with the enforcement, and by the way, it, it's worth mentioning that you know OSHA has essentially been missing in action right. uh, from the beginning and still is right. Yeah. Um, and uh, so, so, so OSHA isn't enforcing any, any regulations, you know, uh, isn't issuing citations, isn't, isn't in an enforcement mode. Um, and, and so, so that's, that's a 
that's a big problem. Um, but we need to be demanding that they that they respond more forcefully to to make sure that workers are are protected. Um, but anyway, the the right to refuse has this work again is a kind of a paperwork right in the sense that. Uh, it exists in in you know on the books. It exists in in the law. Um, unfortunately, the burden of the proof is on the worker and the agency to prove that the employer retaliated against a worker for workplace health and safety. There's a lot of ways that employers can. Um, use other reasons for retaliate, retaliating against employees um, that that sort of circumvent the protections of, of the, the law. Um, so the law exists. Uh, now, there is, there is also protections under uh, the National Labor Relations Board, right, which is, which is actually uh, a much uh, clearer, clearer right that workers have, and and that's um, you know for col- um, concerted activity um, and that that involves workplace health and safety, and there is a right to be uh, doing job actions mm-hmm. uh, to uh, to fight you know to to be demanding better health and safety conditions. So the the bottom line is it's always it's always best to be doing things collectively with coworkers. Uh, being, you know, organizing um, uh, sort of it together as a group, um, and 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 basically, you know, trying to make workplaces safer for um, for everyone, um, and and that is a protected right under the National Labor Relations Board, and a very powerful one, um, and can be used very very effectively. Yeah, um, <laughs> safety in numbers. Um, yeah. Do you see any states right now that uh, are um, sort of going beyond what we see on a national level um, with the federal government in, in terms of making meaningful efforts to uh, ensure workplaces are safe? You know, we, we hear about all these states sort of rushing to, you know, get ahead of the others in terms of reopening. But are there are there states that are that are doing well by workers, relatively speaking? Yeah, I think there. I think there are good. Ex- I think there are uh, good examples of states uh, that are, um, you know, in in various ways trying to um, step up, step up to the plate, and um, and put sort of newer, innovative uh, protections and worker rights uh, into various executive orders or. Uh, you know, sort of emergency uh, policies and such. Um, I just heard um, uh, today about one uh, organ um, uh, implementing uh, a a newer policy that uh, makes um, social distancing a requirement in any workplaces that are sort of reopening um, and having it just be a more um, explicit um, requirement. Uh, 
Uh, Michigan just uh, unveiled a new executive order in this past week um, that um, that get, that really strengthened a lot of the worker protections regarding. Uh, any ki- any kind of return to work uh, in terms of expanding the you know the, the workforce. Um, there's uh, there's several. Um, California had come had come out with a, a very very specific plan for um, the particular industries. What uh, what what the guidance you know is. is Guidance documents are very specific about what kinds of controls uh, would be put in place in order for uh, workplaces in that industry to be starting up. I, that, that's some examples. Um, I mean, I think there's several other ones uh, out there, but it, it is really interesting that um, state, states are um seeing the gaps in a lot of the existing um um you know legal protections and needing to supplement them in this time of crisis um and and that's uh, all certainly uh, so necessary and um you know is a, is a, is a step in the right direction so in many states Reopening also means that workers are getting pushed off of special unemployment benefits, which also leaves them sort of constrained about deciding whether to work or not. So I wonder if you could sort of talk a little bit about this, what the law does and doesn't say about, um, yeah, access to unemployment in this kind of a situation when people theoretically could go to work, but it's still in dangerous conditions. That's an area that um, I'm not really um, as well versed in. You know, the, the there's a lot of um, unemployment uh, in itself is a state, you know, a state by state legal apparatus, as, as is workers' compensation. Uh, which it's it's worth n- knowing that a lot of um, a, a lot of the um, COVID related injuries, illnesses, and fatalities um, that have happened already uh, will be will be challenged in workers' compensation claims. Uh, a lot of workers who uh, are getting COVID. Uh, from the workplace and having all kinds of complications with uh, will be in for a fight when they try to get any kind of compensation related to the the loss of work that they that they have gotten um, you know related to the injury or illness uh, so that's a problem um, and um, and I think you know in general related to unemployment insurance and, and such these these uh, return to work um, uh, plans and uh, policies that are being rushed into place before um, most um, experts and um, and and health professionals. Um, you know, think that it's that it's appropriate, uh, but the fact that 
there being industry is um, is being started up prematurely when, uh, as in the state that I'm in right now, Arizona, we are climbing the curve. Um, we have not reached a plateau. We're getting more and more cases. Um, and they're, and they're, they opened up, you know, they opened up, um, businesses, uh, on, on Monday, um, including restaurants and such. Uh, and it's totally, um, contradictory to what, uh, what any, you know, sort of health professional would be advising in, in order to, um, to really, uh, protect, protect workers and the community. Uh, so we're in a very, very dangerous situation here. Uh, and, and so workers are going to be forced, uh, as many workers have been already, they're going to be forced, uh, into either, um, going back to work, facing a very, very uncertain, uh, level of risk related to, um, getting a life threatening disease illness, uh, or, um, or, or not going to work and suffering the consequences and possibly losing their job, uh, and certainly lo- losing, um, you know, their income, um, that all of those situations are life-threatening. So I think in the past, uh, couple of weeks, um, People have been shocked by some of the news reports about outbreaks in meat processing plants mm-hmm. and other things like mm-hmm. that. Um, but of course, you know, at uh, your organization, people have been ringing the alarm bells for, for many years um, about the, um, the extremely unsafe conditions uh, in these workplaces. So, um, I mean, is, is, is this COVID-19 uh, pandemic basically just highlighting um, the, you know, structural and you know, underlying uh, problems that we're seeing with uh, workplace safety and uh, safety enforcement um, in these particularly problematic industries? Um, or, you know, or perhaps are, are there any surprises in terms of, you know, the, the, the places where um, we've seen uh, outbreaks? Well, you know, the COVID pandemic is certainly highlighting the inequities and injustices in our, um, uh, certainly our, our workplace, uh, you know, systems, as well as uh, our, our entire society um, and, and political structure. Um, I mean, it's it's really important to to note uh, about the uh, disproportionate effects on black and brown uh, people related to COVID, and and that being largely um, explained by workplace exposure. Uh, so in general, you know, uh, uh, blacks, black workers and, and Latinx workers are, uh, twice at, uh, two times at risk, uh, for deaths related to COVID, um, as well as, uh, cases. Um, and, and that, um, is, is definitely, is, is it pr- proportionate to, uh, their high level, you know, high levels of employment in industries um, that have been s- some of the most, you know, dangerous industries, dangerous workplaces for a long time, and particularly now with uh, the the COVID virus being an additional factor. Um, 
And so this is bringing out, you know, some of the longstanding ways in which the price of a worker's life uh, is dirt cheap. So the guide to a safe and just return to work that you put out, as well as other guidelines that have been issued by the CIO, um, all of this has emphasized the need for worker input, as you mentioned earlier. Um, If you don't have a union at your workplace, though, how do you force your employer to listen to those demands? Yeah. So I think, you know, this crisis has created um, a lot more um, sort of openness for workers to be um, expressing their demands and and their um, their their questions, their um, their concerns about the level of protection that's um, that's being provided in the workplace. Um, and, and, and that's, you know, as we mentioned before, that's best done, um, sort of as, as a, as a group of workers, uh, but, um, you know, every worker should be really, um, standing up and asking uh, the, these kinds of questions of the, the plan that the employer has to, uh, to 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 uh, implement uh, various controls and protections, and and it's worth mentioning. You know, there's there's been a lot of emphasis on personal protective equipment, uh, such as respirators and masks, and uh, and, and and such related to um, protections from the virus, but. Um, it's it's really important that people know that uh, there's a lot of other ways that workers can be protected, um, and and this is a whole range of there, there's a concept in workplace health and safety called the hierarchy of controls, and it basically says that that personal protective equipment is like the last resort. The you know the the first uh, the first uh, option is to be trying to um, engineer out the problems or, and, and, uh, implement policies in the workplace that reduces the, the risk and protects workers. So we've seen a lot of this in, um, like retail grocery stores where, um, they're, they're limiting the amount of customers to be coming into the store. They are offering um, in front of the store pickup by customers or de- or even delivery. You have to be protecting against all you know all close contact with people um, in terms of in a workplace setting. The you know the more protection that you have, the more distance you have, the better. The other factor to be aware that people need to be aware of is. Um, that um, air sp- the 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 amount of airflow and um, you know the ventilation system can can be important in terms of related to the um, the the ability for the virus to be in the air and for others to be uh, getting exposed to it uh, and possible transmission. So 
um, obviously outdoor environments are sort of the best because they're, you know, you have air mixture or going on all the time. Um, the closer, the more uh, confined the space is, the the smaller the the office spaces, the bed, you know, the bathroom space, all of those spaces uh, represent a the, a more higher risk for transmission. Um, so, for example, so for um, you know, in uh, meatpacking and poultry and um, and and um, hog processing and whatever. Uh, basically, these assembly lines, which are uh, very high speed, which they've been increasing the speeds on these lines, and workers are packed together shoulder to shoulder and literally facing each other on the other side of the line. Um, and, and, and that all represents a recipe for disaster. Um, but people need to be, you know, aware of those factors because every workplace is unique. Every workplace uh, has its own set of of, of risk factors. Um, workers are the only ones who really know what it takes to get jobs done, um, and so so that's so workers need to be part of figuring out if. These jo- if these jobs can be done safely um, and with using, you know, the tools that are available in terms of social distancing, uh, protective measures like sneeze guards and barriers, um, doing uh, different uh, job rotations, having more workers. Um, it's, it's, and it's worth noting, you know, this, this whole concern about, um, you know, sort of needing to get people back to work because how important work is to people's lives, how the economic consequences. I mean, we have a, we have a tremendous need for a lot of employment related to trying to fight this, this virus. Uh, We need people in the community doing contact tracing. Um, we, you know, there's all kinds of ways that we need, we need to be creating new jobs, um, for, for people who may, may not be able to do the jobs that they were doing because they're too high risk. Um, and, uh, there's a lot of ways that, um, um, we could be protecting more, more workers and more community members from this very deadly disease. So, so you would say that in terms of getting, getting employers to listen, it's, it sounds, I mean, it sounds like it's, it's kind of at the employer's discretion in some cases, if, if there's no collective bargaining agreement in place. Well, but you know, again, I mean, there's been there's been workplace act, act job actions being taken taken place in not in non union workplaces all over the country. Um, there, there's I mean there there's at least two hundred documented um, job actions that that have taken a place. Mostly of them are not are, are non union workplaces. 
um, because most workplaces are non-unionized. Uh, and, 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 and of course, uh, there, there's tremendous activity going on in union workplaces also in terms of getting, you know, getting protections be put in place. But, but particularly in the, in the non-union workplaces, um, uh, there's, there's just incredible examples of um, these um, movements that are happening uh, spontaneously, as well as within organized um, uh, organized efforts, uh, you know, for for workers to stick together and 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 say th- this this is this is too much um, that they're ready, you know, pe- workers are ready to to stand together and to be making you know making demands. About um, you know that their life is worth more than uh, whatever fifteen dollars an hour or uh, whatever it is, um, and and that is really you know um, I mean that's 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 what workers need to be doing uh, at this point. I mean there's there's no doubt about it. Uh, the situation this the situations that people have that workers have been put in you know, put into in these last several months without adequate protections, simply being thrown into public, uh, you know, public sector workers, bus drivers. I mean, there's hundreds, hundreds of documented bus drivers, transportation workers that are now dead because they were put in situations, thrown into the situation with you know, with masses of 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 the public um, being you know using their services, and and they've gotten infected, and and many have died, um, and and that's just one example. In your guide as well, you also talk about how uh, even in workplaces that are not represented by union, you uh, workers can try to appoint someone from a, a community-based organization or even from a union to yeah. kind of serve as a safety liaison or provide some sort of oversight role. Uh, can you talk about how that would work? Um, you know, just how, how, a, how a, a group of workers, let's say, would, would go about trying to enlist a community organization to make their workplace safer? Yeah, yeah. So um, workers should know that there are lots of um, advocacy um, organizations, community organizations, um, like National Kosh is, uh, but as well as uh, a lot of uh, other organizations, uh, part of our network and and throughout the country, that really uh, advocate for worker rights, uh, and especially related to workplace health and safety. and and those organizations can um, can be representing uh, workers uh, in these kinds of efforts to um, uh, to, to be uh, doing consultations uh, with workplaces, um, advising, being um, uh, on like OSHA inspections. Um, in terms of representing workers, workers can have representatives uh, in the community uh, to be 
basically supporting their efforts. Um, and that's a long, you know, that, that's been a, uh, a, a um, uh, practice that's been, that's been very, very helpful in a lot of situations uh, to, to make improvements in workplaces. So the pandemic has highlighted this massive racial and economic inequalities that we were aware of. Certainly our listeners probably were. Um, but what are some ways that the return to work can be done in ways that help address those inequalities. Um, for example, among gig workers and farm workers and others who've been left out of labor law or you know, have seen people take advantage of gaps in labor law. One of the things that we've been saying uh, and a lot of people in our movement is um, you know, that, that we're not interested in, in sort of the return to normal. <laughs> This is this is not um, you know this is this is this is not about getting you know back to where we were before the pandemic. Um, things the equation has changed. Um, the, there is a new awareness about um, how workers' lives have have been put in in. In da- you know, in dangerous situations, in life, life-threatening situations, um, and that that's not acceptable, and that it's been a very, very um, unequitable system, um, and that um, workers and and their allies um, are going to need more to be at the table um, in terms of how to um, uh, be part of the solution to have a more equal and just um, society. Um, I mean, this has really uh, exposed um, what our disparities, you know, are in, 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 in the workplace and society. Um, and I think that it's going to create, um, sort of a new, um, a new organizing effort, um, among, um, ourselves to be, uh, looking at this, at the big picture and really fighting against the uh, inequities and injustices and inequality that um, happens in our workplaces and, and in the society. You're listening to Belabored, a Descent Magazine podcast. Links to articles mentioned in this episode may be found at descentmagazine.org. That was Peter Dooley of the National Council for Occupational Safety and Health. We'll put links to his work, including the Safe and Just Return to Work report, at the Descent website, descentmagazine.org. And now it's time for everyone's favorite segment, ARG. I wish I'd written that. This week, I'm arguing a friend of mine and yours, James Meadway over at Novar Media, with a piece called Pandemic Labor and the Politics of Job Guarantees. 
I remain somewhat skeptical of job guarantees at the best of times, but this is very far from the best of times. In the moment of a pandemic with workers contacting me frantic that they're being forced to work in unsafe conditions and wanting to know how they can safely say no, I worry that a job guarantee becomes less of a promise and more of a threat. Another thing, twisting people's arms into doing work when they're not safe. After all, as I wrote at TNR recently, What we are really seeing in this moment is the way that all work is in fact coercive, and that what we really need right now is a right to not have to work. Otherwise, those essential workers will just end up once again, as we've said repeatedly, just treated like they're expendable. Nevertheless, of course, I understand also the appeal of a job guarantee. We have for so long accepted that one must work to live, and there is, of course, work that does need doing in order to continue to have a society. I am not a sea debtor aiming to float out into the open ocean by myself so I can flip off all my former bosses, though sometimes that's tempting. But particularly with the climate crisis looming, infrastructure collapsing, hello to the collapsed dams in Michigan that I am just hearing about as I record this, which forced thousands of people to evacuate their homes in a pandemic, I understand why guaranteed work sounds appealing. So I appreciate James's thoughtful critique of the job guarantee proposal put forward by the Trade Union Congress in the UK. He writes, quote, With foot stamping to the government's right on the need for a speedy return to normality, but a conservative party split on the issue and the public understandably concerned about rushing to end the lockdown, the management of a return to work is posing the question of power over labor particularly sharply. The TUC's refusal to simply fall in behind the government's forced march back to work is an outstanding example of this, as are the indignant squeals of at its temerity from Tory sources. The confused messaging offered by the prime minister on phasing out the lockdown shows how politically fraught the issue has become. The class politics involved in essentially insisting that blue-collar work must be performed in hazardous workplaces, whilst white-collar workers can continue to stay home, are jarringly obvious. Yet without direct compulsion, it is not, at the time of writing, clear how far the government's will can be enforced. End quote. The TUC's job guarantee, alongside demands that the government continue to support workers staying home, is a pretty good one. Nevertheless, James warns, and I concur, in the context of this pandemic, guarantees of work contain risks that the guarantee will be used against us. In the UK and the US right now, right-wing politicians and their big money backers, plus a couple of those rich guys who like to pretend they're liberals, like, you know, Lloyd Blankfein, have been pretty clearly saying that the economy is to be reopened or else, and who cares if more working people die. In such a context, is a job guarantee what we need, or is a guaranteed access to income? We talked earlier about the Kroger workers who are having their brief hero pay taken away. But if people have the right to stay home, maybe Kruger would have more incentive to make those pay raises permanent. And let's not forget the meatpacking workers we talked about so extensively last time. James continues, quote, It is in this context that the economic fights move from conventional struggles over the distribution of what society produces that we're used to, in which for a long period of time, labor has broadly lost out to capital as real wages stagnated or even fell over the last decade and more directly into the intense political conflict over the right to control and direct work. Distributional conflicts will remain, of course, but they will be joined and dominated by this extra dimension of control. 
The disruption caused by COVID-19 zeroes in on the labor market and the physical activity of work itself. Managing a return to a functioning economy will require the direction and prioritization of certain activities. The market alone cannot do this, but economic disputes at the center of this Tory government hinge on how far it might be able to. End quote. He further notes, quote, the exit from this phase of the pandemic crisis will pose specific problems, which sectors to reopen, how to guarantee safety when they do, that require specific and detailed answers. The left should be proposing that the control of this process is put in the hands of those who actually do the work and who will be first to suffer the consequences of infection rather than to the scheming of this government and Tory donors. Income support and the suspension of essential payments from utility bills to monthly rent are all necessary during this period and for the immediate future, and current income provision should be preserved and expanded. But these furlough income payments aren't a job guarantee. In a sense, they're the exact opposite. They are a non-work guarantee. They are guarantees of protection for when work should not be performed. End quote. And most importantly, he writes... It is one thing to say everyone should work. It is quite another to insist that everyone must work, even when it is actively dangerous or could seem to be so. The government's current messaging, such as it is, leans towards should, it may move into must, and cuts to furlough payments inch it towards that. It is essential in circumstances of pandemic risk and with the possibility of second or more waves of the current virus, as well as the high degree of uncertainty around the immunity of those who have been infected, to have the right to refuse work and to insist on the right of refusal in unsafe conditions. Most people have a good sense of this already, as the polling unease about ending the lockdown early clearly indicates. A job guarantee demanded by labor rather than imposed by capital is probably a better one. Nevertheless, right now, labor still remains weak, though the pandemic conditions might help to change that, as we heard earlier in today's show. Those conditions also, though, open up new frontiers for mechanisms of control by the boss on the job. Temperature checks as containment theater rather than real safety precautions, contact tracing, bosses asking workers to stay home outside of the job. In these conditions, James concludes, quote, the power to determine the boundaries of work and not work must be left to individuals, meaning especially control both over the nature and extent of surveillance and monitoring that takes place, but also the power of refusal of work in unsafe conditions. A universal basic income is rapidly becoming common sense for many, since it provides the fundamental capacity to refuse work and to refuse the conditions offered in work. It should be the foundation stone to rebuild work. The power to refuse work grants the power to shape work. And finally, any guarantees of future employment should arrive without compulsion and with the conditions the TUC sets out. Safe conditions, proper pay, and socially useful work. End quote. My pick for ARG is Thousands of Essential Workers Are at Risk of Deportation in In These Times by Mauricio Guerrero. There are millions of immigrant workers in this country without papers, also known as the undocumented. But over the past month and a half, some of those workers got papers to allow them to continue to work at their jobs. But they're not immigration papers. Rather, they're papers certifying that they are so-called essential workers. That means they get to do essential work while the rest of the economy remains shuttered. But unfortunately, the fact that their work is essential doesn't prevent them from being treated like they're disposable goods. 
What these letters provide is some marginal protection from arrest. When they're traveling to and from work, they can't be apprehended by local cops and charged with violating the stay-at-home orders, but they are still extremely legally vulnerable. As Guerrero points out, they might not be arrested for violating the stay-at-home orders, but they could still be detained and deported at any time. Guerrero describes the so-called essential work of Jose, a landscaper in Connecticut, whose job maintaining lawns and greenery surrounding apartment and commercial buildings has earned him one of these essential worker permits. Yet, he is, quote, not entitled to protective gear, compensation, federal financial aid, or safeguards from immigration agents. For several weeks, Jose actually worked without protective equipment, unquote. So workers like Jose are essential enough to be forced to work in the middle of a pandemic, but not essential enough to merit adequate protection, nor essential enough to be spared the brutal indignity of being ripped from their families and sent into exile in their home countries. And regardless of how essential their companies think they are, undocumented workers have been categorically excluded from the multi-trillion dollar relief packages recently passed by Congress. Most states have also excluded undocumented workers from their relief programs, California being the one notable exception, which offers direct cash payments to undocumented workers through a separate fund. But it's not just access to stimulus money. There's an existential crisis layered on top of their fear of contracting COVID-19. Trump is still deporting people. Although ICE have for now halted the aggressive immigration raids that have terrorized many communities for the past three and a half years, deportations are still occurring regularly. And ICE still has huge latitude to detain people based on whether they are deemed so-called public safety threats or charged with some kind of criminal infraction. This category can include people arrested for extremely minor or non-violent offenses like traffic-related violations, or simply illegal border crossing. There have been reported outbreaks, meanwhile, in immigration detention, meaning that homeland security may already be effectively exporting the virus to the home countries of deported immigrants, in addition to all the other dangers they will face when returning to their home country in the midst of a global economic and public health crisis. Adding insult to injury, the Trump administration has also pushed to limit the number of work permits granted to immigrants, one of the few avenues they have for coming to the U.S. to work legally, albeit in low-wage jobs, under extremely harsh conditions. The administration also sought to lower wages for seasonal contracted farm workers. And yet, these immigrants are working in jobs that are deemed essential, essential to our food supply and to various service industries. Such moves could be an act of economic sabotage, but then again, it's not so different from the way the country treated undocumented workers before the pandemic. It's as if the more economy needs their labor, the more the political system despises their presence. This contradictory stance on the undocumented population has been highlighted by the coronavirus pandemic. At the same time, it is also being further underscored by an upcoming Supreme Court ruling on Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals, or DACA, the Obama-era program that granted temporary reprieve from deportation to undocumented young people who came to the country as children. If the Supreme Court dismantles DACA, these youth will be vulnerable to deportation at a time when immigrant communities are even more unstable than usual. Ironically, many of these young people with DACA are also working so-called essential jobs. According to the Center for Migration Studies, 43,500 DACA recipients are working in healthcare or social care jobs, including 10,300 working in hospitals, 12,400 work in supermarkets, 3,200 work in pharmacies. In addition, 76,600 are working in the restaurant and other food-related industries. Many others are working in manufacturing plants, making things like food products, cleaning materials, and medical equipment. But the Supreme Court could toss all of that away, showing that no matter how supposedly essential you are, as a non-citizen, your legal personhood can be erased by a court decree. Pili Tobar, deputy director of the advocacy group America's Voice, pointed out in Guerrero's article, that, quote, all of the 11 million undocumented people in this country are essential workers, contributing one way or another to their countries and their communities, unquote. The official definitions of essential and non-essential workers 
don't mesh with our community's moral compass. That's why both essential and non-essential workers are being forced to unnecessarily risk their lives for their employers. Like the distinction between documented and undocumented, the line between essential and non-essential is an arbitrary one drawn to prioritize some lives over others for the sake of profit and to keep working class people from recognizing what they fundamentally have in common, the value of their humanity. And that is it for this episode of Belabored. Thanks for listening. And thanks to Colin Kinneberg, our new producer, for making us sound good all the way from across the Atlantic. If you would like to get all of our archived episodes or become a sustaining member of this podcast to support our work, go to dissentmagazine.org. If you are scared to go back to work, even as your state rushes to reopen its economy, or if you are organizing your workplace in order to demand better safety conditions, or if you're just refusing to go because you feel your workplace is unsafe, we want to hear from you. You can get us on Twitter at hashtag belabored, or you can email us at dissentmagazine.org. Also check out our new story series, Belabored Stories, about how workers are coping with the pandemic. Also at dissentmagazine.org. And this Sunday, you can catch Sarah and I doing a panel for the virtual Red May conference with Cal Winslow. For more information on that, go to redmayseattle.org. Over and out. You've been listening to Descent Magazine's Belabored Podcast. For the entire archive of past episodes, visit descentmagazine.org. Join us online using hashtag belabored. 